0: Let's pray. We call upon you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Your grace and mercy, as promised to us through the gospel, that we who are your people draw nigh unto you, and that we, God, would be blessed as you've promised us, Lord. Blessed, however, that may look like, Lord, through repentance and through encouragement and the like. We pray, Lord, that especially that we would listen to your word and follow with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Lord, to continue to believe and trust in you, we pray. In accordance to the Lord's prayer, our Father. Repeat to the phone Responsive reading of Psalm 56. Psalm 56. Let us read it together or responsively. Be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up. Fighting all day, he oppresses me. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. God, I trust. I not fear, All the day they twist my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. So they escape by iniquity, and anger cast down the peoples, O God. When I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know because God is for me. In God I have put my trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? For you have delivered my soul from death, have you not kept my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of the living? Let us pray. Indeed, Lord God, may this psalm encourage any who need the encouragement to stand firm to do what is right in the face of evil, in the face of people who do wrong against us, who twist our words as we read in the psalmist here, Lord, and all their thoughts are against us. the church, our family perhaps, or whatever the case we find ourselves in, Lord, in our neighborhood, at work, or on a larger societal scale, may we trust in you, continue to rely upon you, Lord, and do the right thing by your strength and your spirit. We praise you, God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for the goodness that is you, for the greatness that is you, for your might and power exercised in creation and the guidance of all things to your glorious end. O marvelous God above, may we meditate upon your greatness indeed, to be thankful, to be joyous, to be encouraged, to persevere, that you indeed watch over us and have watched over us, as the psalmist reminds himself, in Psalm 56, reminds us. Nevertheless, we have sinned. We have sinned in thought and word and deed, one degree or another, somewhere, somehow, God, throughout the week. Help us, we pray, to that end, Lord, not to be discouraged, but to cling to Christ Jesus, to be encouraged by your goodness and your guidance upon all things in our life, Lord, in particular, and that we can see your hand upon us, we can see the blessings you've given us, especially in the gospel of Christ Jesus, our Lord, that we would not shrink back, but rather, as we were told in the book of Hebrews, to enter boldly to the throne room of grace, and grace and mercy and long-suffering from our Father above. We ask that you would be with our families, that you would preserve us, body and soul, uh, that the husbands would lead the family and their wives, and that they, God, would protect them and instruct them. We pray for the wives to submit to their husbands, Lord, that they, God, would do the right thing in the face of a world that wishes them to do the wrong thing, that they would instruct their children, they would guide and protect their children as well, in conjunction uh, with their husband. We ask, God, that you would be with the children. To protect them, body and soul. We think of the baby to be and the baby that has uh, been here for a few months or at least overseas and now here with us. We rejoice and praise you, God, for your protection of the family. An amazing protection indeed. And that they would learn your word, Lord, the children, and learn to love their parents. Piety begins in the home in many ways, God. And may they learn such piety and self-control and the fruit of the spirits from a young age onward. And they would love you and love their family and love the church. But above all, love Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. And we pray, God, not just for our immediate family, Lord, but for all those related to our family, our grandparents, our grandchildren, our aunts and uncles, Lord, to the extent that they are part of our lives. We pray that they indeed are. That we would help them do their duties. They would help us and our families, Lord, as well. We pray for them and pray for us. Maintain, we pray, unity in our families, especially unity based upon Christ Jesus not just our families, God. We pray for the singles, the couples among us, Lord. Couples who have children, and they've grown up and have their own children, God. That you would be with them, and that you would help them in their older years to know their place and their callings and to do what they can to help the families and others in their life, Lord. We pray for the singles among us, God, that you protect them and keep them pure and that they would, Lord, find a godly mate Gracious God and Savior, we thank you for our church. That certainly emphasizes upon the importance of the family, but also, Lord, does not forget that there are singles and couples and people without children, Lord God, and that we are all in this together as the family of God and to help and encourage one another and to equip one another as we can through admonition, through instruction, to protect us from the temptation and lies of the devil and the world around us. God Almighty, we pray for our work situation and what you've blessed us with, that we would uh, be wise in our jobs, and work well as unto the Lord, and not merely unto man. Certainly we wish the best for our companies and our bosses, God, and not to make them look bad and do a good job, but may it always be in the light of you and your grace upon us, God, that we would be wise and that we would be humble as well, as we will find ourselves being corrected for our errors, perhaps stubbornness on the job. But we're a God, especially we are thankful for employment, And for money, we pray for more money as needed, especially in Denver where it's so excessively expensive in such a short period of time, Lord. It seems to have no end in sight. And so, God, we pray for those especially who are struggling financially in the situation they find themselves in here in Denver, that you would help them find a very good job. Uh, That's Lord God Almighty, that it would be a good job that would last and uh, keep them, we pray. And we pray also, Lord, for wisdom to know and quit our jobs, and to ask God for good bosses, uh, to ask for good work environments and the like, but nevertheless to persevere in spite of those difficulties, especially again if it's hard to find a new job. And Lord, precious spirit of truth, we ask that you would be with us in our stewardship. Now, part of our stewardship involves how we work, what we do on the job, but also, Lord, with the monies that we gain from our jobs and with the resources we have outside of that in our homes and our family, Lord, and our time that we would use them as unto the Lord, that we would uh, use them aright, God, not only for work but also for rest and even relaxation, God, that you have given us in your providence and your love for us, Lord, that we would use them aright and not to overwork ourselves or even underwork, as the case may be. May we as your people, Lord, continue to love you, depend upon you, and be thankful for what you've given us, even if it's a small measure as stewards. But always, Lord, to stand in awe of what you have indeed given us through Christ Jesus our Lord and Savior, and to be humbled thereby, and to be encouraged and strengthened, Lord, to even be emboldened, uh, emboldened to do our duty on our job, and our family, and our neighborhood, and our church. Wherever we find ourselves, God, we have responsibilities, and may we do them joyously before the Lord. We pray for continued protection of your church, that you would watch over her, and that you would protect her, as you've protected the family from China that is now with us. And indeed, God, that you would continue to protect the churches across America and their children especially, who are vulnerable to the wickedness around us, on the Internet, on the TV. It's everywhere and growing, God. It's absolutely horrid. We pray not only for ourselves, God, but for our brothers and sisters across seas, such as China, such as Korea, North Korea in particular, Africa and Middle East, other places, a persecution of one degree or another that we have not encountered yet in the West, and pray we never would, that you would be with them, God, in body and soul and give them the support they need, especially, God, for the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ would always be in their lips and their hearts, we pray. We ask, God, that you be with us this day, that we would draw an eye unto you, as you draw an eye unto us. We ask these things in your glorious name's sake. Amen. We now have the tithes and offerings. rise. We stand in awe of the might and mercy that is you, Lord Almighty, and that you have given us the opportunity and the ability to give these tithes and offerings. Bless them, we pray, especially for your name's sake and for the work of the kingdom of God to expand, we pray. Amen. Let us sing hymn 170 while we are standing, 170. May be seated. We have the Apostles' Creed and then we'll have the baptism. Apostles' Creed is a green sheet inside the hymnal. Let us say it together I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come, the judge, the living, and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Marshall, if you would bring your family up here, please. Say hi. I better not touch him. He, right, he doesn't like... Maybe he was cranky last night, but... Usually I get along just fine with kids. Right? Mm. So we have the baptism. How old is he? Five months. Five months old. Marshall rock. What's his middle name? Marshall James. For some reason they don't have the text printed out in here. Why? I don't know. So I need to read the relevant text, which is the Great Commission, brothers and sisters. Christ says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, the ethnos, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The Lord Jesus Christ instituted baptism as a covenant sign and a seal for his children. He uses it not only for the solemn admission of the person who is baptized into the visible church, but also to depict and to confirm his engrafting of that person into himself and his including that person into the covenant of grace. The Lord uses baptism to portray to us that we and our children are conceived and born in sin and need to be cleansed. He uses it to witness and to seal to us remission of sins and the bestowal of all the gifts of salvation through union with Christ. Baptism with water signifies and seals cleansing from sin by the blood of and the Spirit of Christ together with our death unto sin and our resurrection unto newness of life by virtue of the death and resurrection of Christ. The time of the outward application of the sign does not necessarily coincide with the inward work of the Holy Spirit. It's one of the errors of the Roman Catholic Church, among others, which the sign represents in the seals to us, because these gifts of salvation are the gracious provision of the triune God, who is pleased to claim us as his very own. We are baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And our baptism, the Lord puts his name on us, claims us as his own, and summons us to assume the obligations of the covenant. He calls us to believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior, to renounce the devil, the world, and the flesh, and to walk humbly with our God in devotion to his commandments. As solemn vows are about to be made before the Lord, and baptism is now to be administered. You who are baptized will do well to take this occasion to reflect on your own baptism. Christ has put his name and claim on you. He calls you to be repentant for your sins against your covenant God, to confess your faith before men, and to live in newness of life to God, who sealed his covenant with you by the blood of his own Son. Although... Our young children do not yet understand these things. They are nevertheless to be baptized. For God commands that all who are under his covenant of grace be given the sign of the covenant. God made the promise of the covenant to believers and to their offspring. In the Old Testament, he declared to Abraham, And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and your seed after you, and the generation for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto you, and to your seed after you. For this reason, in the Old Testament, God commanded the covenant infants to be signed to be given the sign of circumcision. The covenant is the same in essence in both the Old and New Testament. Indeed, the grace of God for the consolation of the believers is even more fully manifested in the New Testament. Thus, rather than rescinding the covenant promised to believers and their offspring in the New Testament, God reaffirms it. He declares that the promise is unto you and to your children. Acts 2.39 and Peter's Pentecostal sermon. His promise Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in your household, Acts 16.31. He affirms that if even one parent is a believer, the children are holy, 1 Corinthians 7.14. Moreover, our Savior admitted little children to his presence, embracing and blessing them as saying, of such is the kingdom of God. And so in the New Testament, no less than the Old, the children of believers have an interest in the covenant, and a right to the covenant sign, and to the outward privileges of the covenant of people, and the church. In the New Testament, baptism has replaced circumcision as the covenant sign. Therefore, by the covenant sign of baptism, the children of believers are to be distinguished from the world and solemnly admitted into the visible church. And thus now we have the vows. They already had their first child baptized. We've gone over the meaning of baptism, that it does not save as such, although it is a means of grace to help the child in God's good pleasure and time. Do you acknowledge that although our children are conceived and born in sin, therefore are subject to condemnation, they are holy in Christ by virtue of the covenant of grace, and as children of the covenant are to be baptized? Yes. Do you promise to teach diligently to marshal the principles of our holy Christian faith revealed in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament and summarized in the confession of faith and catechisms in this church? Do you promise to pray regularly with and for Marshall and to set an example of piety and godliness before him? Yes. Do you promise to endeavor by all the means that God has appointed to bring Marshall up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, encouraging him to appropriate for himself the blessing and the to fulfill the obligations of the covenant? That is, to confess Christ when you're old enough to know what that means because it's a public vow and little children don't understand public vows and the implications thereof. Let us pray. We praise you and thank you, God Almighty, that you have brought the rocks back to us safely through a harrowing experience through China. And now we have Marshall before us, God Almighty, and we pray for your blessings upon him and the family. Help them, Lord, to acclimate back to America and the church, and especially for their son, both children, to grow up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. As Marshall is baptized into Christ, he becomes a member of the visible church. The whole congregation is obliged to love him. Oh, I skipped it. It's really short here. There it is. I had the prayer. Now I will baptize Marshall. You ready? Marshall, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Yes, you've been separated from the world visibly, may it be so in your heart as well as Marshall is baptized into Christ he becomes a member of this visible church the whole congregation is obligated to love him and receive him as members of the body of Christ, they talked about when I was a kid I guess I was in my 20's it takes a village to raise a kid, right, remember that in the 90's, and there's truth to that in the sense that it does have a community to help the family, to help the child and we are the family of God For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, and therefore are members of one another. Christ claims this little child as his own, and calls you to receive him in love and commitment. Therefore, you ought to commit yourself before God to assist Marshall, all of you, and his parents, in their Christian nurture by godly example, prayer, and encouragement in our most holy and precious faith. Beloved in Christ Jesus, we give thanks to God for this child... That he has given you, and for your expressed desire for him to know the Lord and to follow him all his days, along with the great blessing of the gift of this child, has come responsibilities that you have just acknowledged and to which you have solemnly committed yourselves. And I charge you to continue steadfastly in the commitments which you have made today before God and these witnesses, humbly relying upon the grace of God and diligent use of the means of grace, especially the word of God, sacraments. And prayer, let us pray. We indeed pray this prayer, God, and blessing upon them and the family, Lord, to stand firm in this day of darkness, to instruct the children, to protect them from the wiles of the devil, that they may grow up to love you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Amen. Congratulations. Thanks. Let us turn to our Bibles to Mark. As only God can in his providence, the passage I have in Mark deals with baptism. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Let us listen attentively to the word of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God... As it is written in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the lands of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. And so, Lord, as we begin through the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, and how Mark, through the guidance of your Spirit, writes down in stark Relief, Uh, the ministry of Christ Jesus, beginning with John the Baptizer, pointing out and directing all of the Church of Israel to Jesus Christ, our Lord. And help us, God, to follow the route, and follow the direction and pointing of Mark, Lord, to Jesus Christ, our God and Savior. Uh, Even here, as we go over John the Baptizer and his gospel, and how it is indeed the same gospel as our Lord and Savior. Amen. The book of Mark was written by Mark, you ought to all say. His first name is John, John Mark. Probably a young man who had known the Lord while he was on earth and spent much time with the apostles. We know very little about him. He seemed to spend most of the time with Peter and Paul, as you read in 1 Peter and Colossians, as well as 2 Timothy 4. Mark was a cousin or perhaps nephew of Barnabas. His gospel is written in the common Greek of the area and bears evidence of a Jewish background as well. It appears to be written to a mostly Gentile audience, probably in Rome. The influence of Latin is also there as well, and other uh, indications in particular. Now, of course, John Mark didn't write the gospel so that you would know all about him, but I'm setting the historical stage to show you that it's rooted in history and that he is here and given by the Spirit of God to instruct us and has experience in that instruction. He didn't just make it up. But what is the point of the book? The obvious one is what we call the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of his ministry. As he says in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But why the emphasis upon the power of God? Because the book was written during a time of persecution and the difficulties for Christians, it seems. Probably written around 68 to 70 A.D., we find much turmoil at that time, leading up to what happened in 70 AD, the fall of Jerusalem, which was a terrible thing to behold, and affected the Christians. We must not forget that at that time, the Christian religion was considered a sect or a subset of the Jewish religion, as far as Rome was concerned. Rome didn't know much about them. It was a small little province far away from <laughs> Italy. And so they had the protection in the sense of Rome officially recognized the Jews and left them alone as long as they behaved. Well, they weren't behaving again, as was common with the Jews. And so Rome came down and crushed them in Jerusalem, which means they crushed Christians as well. They got caught up in that. The Roman historian uh, Tacitus described the period in the late 60s. This way, the history in which I am entering is that of a period rich in disasters, terrible with battles, torn by civil struggles, horrible even in peace. Four emperors fell by the sword. There were three civil wars, more foreign wars, and often both at the same time. Italy was distressed by disasters unknown before or returning after the lapse of the ages. Besides the manifold misfortunes that befell mankind... There are prodigies in the skies and on the earth, warnings given by thunderbolts and prophecies of the future, both joyful and gloomy, uncertain and clear. And so the secular historian describes what appears to be the time in which Mark wrote these things, and that's why we have um, a number of places in Mark about persecution alike that Jesus speaks of, highlighted by him. The book can be broadly divided into six sections, the prologue which we are part of, up to verse 13. Jesus' ministry in Galilee proper, so that's after 13 to chapter 6, verse 44. Jesus' ministry to the Gentile regions, and that's chapter 6 to chapter 9, verse 32. Conclusion of the Galilee ministry in chapter 9. And then his journey to Jerusalem itself in chapter 10. His suffering and his death, in the latter chapters 11 through 15, and then the resurrection in chapter 16. So let us dig into our texts. The prophecy of John the Baptizer, verses 1 through 3. The prophecy of John the Baptizer. And so here uh, we have at the beginning, right here, the beginning of the gospel, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And clearly he's not saying the gospel never existed before then, but rather his ministry, properly speaking, was begun as an adult. And John presented him, and as we know, John baptizes him into the ministry. Now, to set the stage, Mark quotes the Old Testament, as is written by the prophets, What is written? Why is he giving this here? What he's explaining is, this prophecy is about John the Baptizer. John is significant, he's saying, and I'm not making it up, so I'm going to quote to my audience, probably, therefore, Gentiles who have some knowledge of the Old Testament, proselytes. Behold, I send my messenger before your face. He'll prepare your way in the voice of one crying in the wilderness. This is a combination of apparently three Old Testament passages. Exodus 23.20, in the Septuagint, Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way that you bring you in the place which I have prepared. The famous one of Malachi 3.1, which I preached on when I went through Malachi, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek. And then Isaiah 43.40, verse 3, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And Mark is claiming, as we know it's divine inspiration, that this is the case. This is John. This is speaking of John preparing God's people for the arrival of the Messiah, the promised one of the Old Testament. It was John's duty to prepare the way of the Lord. He prepared the way of the Lord through announcing his coming as a herald announces a king. We don't have that today. The closest we have, I guess, is the media saying, here comes the president to Denver. We're all like, oh, okay, this is kind of neat. Let's all all throng together. No, back then you had an official representative. He would go out and he would decree to the whole world and tell them, the king is coming. Prepare yourself. This is serious stuff. Because you could lose your head. (laughs) And not just announcing his coming, but preparing for his coming, calling them to repentance, to moral purity, that you don't come before the king in rags, but in riches. Again, quite the opposite of today, where I think more and more Americans would be comfortable meeting the President of the United States in shorts and a flip-flop. It would do no such thing back then. And so he calls for a visible sign of repentance through baptism, as we read in verse 4. This is how John fulfills his obligations as prophesied in the Old Testament. And what's interesting in that and those verses, they are, one, token verses. That is, they are part for the whole, is what I mean by token. And so, he quotes three passages, but there are other passages in the Old Testament dealing with the coming of Christ, dealing with Jesus Christ in the New Testament age. And it's commonplace for them to only quote part of a passage and combine it with yet another passage. This why you have Exodus, perhaps, and certainly Malachi and Isaiah here, compressed together. And his audience knows that's how they would quote the Old Testament, just how they did it. And they would give the name, like you're reading Matthew, for example, of the greater prophet. And so if Matthew was writing this, he would say, uh, I am quoting Isaiah. But it wasn't just quoting Isaiah, it was also quoting Malachi and perhaps Exodus. He knows that, his audience knows that, and you ought to know that's how they did it back then. So, he's, so a liberal comes up to you and says, well, he's quoting Malachi too. He must be lying. He's not lying. It's how they did the references. They went by the larger prophet or the greater prophet. This gives us the origins of John, that he had a special calling, so his audience knows you should be paying attention to John the Baptizer, not just as a preacher, but as a prophet, and not just as any prophet, but the last of the Old Testament prophet, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets altogether. And his greatness wasn't in himself, as we know, but in his message and of Christ that he's presenting. And God gave him the honor, because it was indeed an honor, to make that proclamation, to make that calling for preparation of his coming, of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he gave him, therefore, authority to preach and teach in a way other men could not and should not, such as the scribes and the Pharisees. This is the dawning of the New Testament age. The promised one has indeed come, Mark is saying. After 1,800 years from the time of Abraham, prophecies in the book of Pentateuch itself, and then after Abraham, when they multiply through the Psalms and the prophets over and over again in different ways, in different pictures, in different manners, an image painted of old, of the coming of Christ, has now come upon them. And here Mark is explaining that John is a witness to this fact. John testifies to this and calls them and all of us to repentance and to submit to the new king as the Son of God enters into history. And things indeed will change because Christ never came in the body of old, but only in the New Testament era, and that changes a lot of things. And so John, therefore, is a forerunner of things to come, a taste of things to come. There is overlap, as I point out. He gives the same message, the same gospel, the same call of repentance. The job of John the baptizer, we talked a little bit about that already, the second point, verses 4 through 5. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And all the land of Judea and from Jerusalem came out and were baptized by him, confessing their sins." He gives evidence of his office. Where is John coming from? Who is he? He's a prophet. He's prophesied of old. He's a herald of the Messiah to come. And he's calling them out. This is now his job, unpacked more explicitly, the job of preaching. Preaching of repentance, the preaching of baptism, and the preaching of remission of sins. Baptizing, or baptism, he calls and preaches. It signifies is tied here, as we see, to repentance. Not that baptism replaces repentance. Oh, I baptized, therefore I have repented in my heart, right? Obviously not the case. It's an outward expression. It's supposed to be of an inward reality. And we cannot read hearts, but can only read actions. And that's why God gave us these actions. Because it certainly does filter out. As much as we hear, maybe it's just I hear, well, you know, you still got hypocrites in the church, people pretending and faking it. Sure. But still, baptism still filters out a lot of those people because you have to make a public confession and say, I want to be associated with the church and not outside the church, which can ostracize your family, it's going to ostracize your friends, and as we've seen that more and more today, and so that's part of the function it has. And in this context, of course, it's not that function as such. It does show separation within the church but not outside the church, because John's baptism is not the Christian baptism as such. It's a forerunner of the Christian baptism. There's overlap. It's about repentance, yes. It points to the Messiah and his work upon our lives and our hearts, yes. But it's pre-Christian in the sense of Christ has not been glorified, and the New Testament church hasn't been birthed through the giving of the Great Commission yet. The new dawn hasn't occurred. And so the significance then is slightly different insofar as it's division within the church. These people in verse 5, lots of them apparently, it says all the land, of course we know all doesn't always mean all, right? <laughs> it means a lot. Came and were baptized, confessing their sins, as opposed to other Jews who were not confessing their sins. This is part of the prophecy of making straight the path of the Lord. That is the path for people to come to the Lord in repentance and purity through the blood of Christ. Because it's been crooked by sin. So we know the history of the Jews, of the Old Testament church, and this church here at the time of Mark and John the baptizer. So it is here, and it has a lot of overlap with Christian baptism, but not to be confused with Christian baptism. Obviously, it was widely recognized, baptizing. I'm not going to go into a sermon on... Um, The mode of baptism. The mode of baptism is sprinkling or pouring. Uh, We get that clearly from the Old Testament prophecies. And Isaiah and Ezekiel in particular tells them that he will sprinkle the the nations in the blood of Christ. Or pour out on the nations. Not dunk them under water. It was a known practice in the sense of it was to be expected because the Jews did not attack baptism as such. They didn't go after John the baptizer for baptizing as such, but rather they asked them why. So we read in John chapter one, verse 25, and they asked him and said unto him, why baptize thou then if thou be not Christ, nor Elijah, neither that prophet? So they're expecting from the Old Testament prophecies that someone would come along and baptize. You go to the Old Testament prophecies, you don't see Drowning, or baptism, as what you often hear today, dunking. Where baptism, more properly, is not the mode. It means to be put under the influence or the power thereof. And so they were baptized into Moses. Was Moses a big tent, and they walked underneath him or something, he poured water under them? They were very dry going through, in 1 Corinthians 10, going through the Red Sea. But rather, they were put formally and officially under his authority and influence as they went through the Red Sea, dry. As I said already, it's a unique baptism. And the reason why I call him John the Baptizer is I don't want people to confuse him with being a Baptist. That's just where we are in America. People hear John the Baptist like, oh, you must be a Baptist! Well, except John the Baptizer believed in the Old Testament circumcision of children to bring them into the covenant, which Baptists don't believe in. Baptists wouldn't do it back then because children aren't in the the covenant. You can't really believe they're saved or something like that. They have all these different arguments. I went through all that. I used to be a Baptist, but not really one of conviction, more like one of, that's how I was raised with. I didn't know any better. So I call him John the Baptizer to make that clear. He's baptizing people, not that he's a Baptist with a capital B. And as I said, the baptism has a lot of significant overlap it's a forerunner, as Matthew Henry points out, but not to be confused with Christian baptism, because Christian baptism, the hallmark of it is what? Be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a Trinitarian formula, as we say. And John the baptizer certainly wasn't doing that. It was simply already in the context of the covenant of grace in the Old Testament form of the covenant of grace, the Jewish church. And they separated themselves from other Jews, like the Pharisees, who didn't think they had to repent. They didn't have to prepare themselves for the Messiah to come because they thought they were good enough, as we know, over and over again, as, they, as Jesus hammers the Pharisees for their pride and their arrogance, thinking you're good enough to go to heaven? You've obeyed God enough? You've done nothing of the kind. Christ came for what? For the sick sinners who know their need of a Savior, not to those who think they're healthy. I didn't come to help and to save those who think they're healthy, Christ says, but those who know they need the Messiah. We read in verse 5, that many embraced in all the land of Judea, and those from Jerusalem went out to him, and were all baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. This was also prophesied in Malachi as well. And again, when he gives reference to those in verses 2 uh, and 3, when he quotes the Old Testament, If you had Jews here or well-educated Gentiles, they would know the context. They would know the other parts of the prophecy. And so here we have uh, in Malachi 4, 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest they come and strike the earth with a curse. And that is clearly uh, applied to John the baptizer elsewhere in the Gospels. And it's not biological, right? It's not like John's helping all these broken families and the boys and the sons and daughters come to the parents and are are sorry to them. But rather, it's used in the language of the fifth commandment to talk about the leadership of the nation where the leaders, the fathers of the people, uh, were disobedient and not submitting to God. And God brings repentance, the hearts of the fathers, to the children, and the children to their fathers. That is, the children to the leaders of the church. And you see that clearly in Malachi when it's used two or three other places about Levites and elsewhere, we use the language of father and progeny as a metaphor for s- societal leaders and the people therein. And it's the same here. The point being, it's a fulfillment of prophecy yet again, brothers and sisters, here in verse 5. And this is the job of the pastor as well. Like John the baptizer, we are called to preach and to baptize. And I'm going to go over that message now. Preaching. Preaching of repentance and remission of sins. The job of John the baptizer was to baptize, but baptize in the context of what? Repentance and remission of sins that is preached therein. Not just baptism because it's a magical formula. You don't bring preaching. You must preach when you baptize. There must be associated. An explanation of what's going on in the baptism. So the world knows it's not magic, but rather what God has done through Christ Jesus that is represented in baptism and what it means. Repentance, first and foremost, means a change of mind. It's it's literally what it means in the Greek. By implication, of course, leading to a change elsewhere in your life. It may take time, but certainly it starts in your heart. It's a common Old Testament theme, of course, repentance. Repent, hate your sin, flee from it, acknowledge your sin. I have sinned, I'm a sinner God, save me. That's the picture of repentance. It's a common Old Testament theme when it's a common New Testament theme. In the letters, it talks about repentance. It talks about acknowledging your sins. It talks about forsaking your sins. That's all wrapped up in the idea of changing your mind, repent, with respect to your sins. Your sins in thought, your sins in word, and your sins in deed. And say, this is wrong. I shouldn't be doing this. God Almighty, help me. I hate my sins. It hurts me. It hurts other people. And above all, it offends God even if no one else sees my sins. That's repentance. And that's what John cried out, and that's what pastors must cry out. And that's what all of us, you don't have to be a pastor to tell somebody. You need to repent when the opportunity arises. It's a recognition and a hating of our violation of God's law through respect to God's law. Sin is not social pressure, it's not social expectation, it's not even laws per se. Those social expectations, those laws may happen to overlap with God's law, and that would be great. We have a lot of that in America. But it's not that, it's God's law, properly speaking. We have to, and therefore, although not explicit in John's ministry from the details that we have, that he unpacked what the law of God was, because I think part of that is the Jews knew God. I mean, they memorized the Ten Commandments. They memorized all kinds of stuff at the time. They knew the law and the way, unfortunately, many American Christians do not. And so we would have to go one step further as churches and explain to them the law of God. This is where you need to repent. And we, knew, we do know that John was specific in the call of repentance. For he told Herod to repent <laughs> of his violation of the Seventh commandments. Remission of sins. He preached the remission of sins. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching the baptism of repentance for, for the remission of sins. Repentance for the remission of sins. The remission of sins did not occur through baptism per se, as though, again, baptism was magical or blood of Christ somehow. But rather, it's unto or for You repent because you're pleading the blood of Christ Jesus. I mean, we know that remissions of sins in John's theology is tied to the Messiah. He says, and he's preaching, verse 7, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We know elsewhere in the Gospels how he points clearly and explicitly to Jesus Christ, saying, He is the promised Lamb of God. Go to Him. Don't go to me. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. And he's saying the Messiah is what? The one who brings remission of sins. That's clear from the Old Testament prophecies, which is the entire background of John's ministry. And when he talks about remission of sins, he's talking about remissions of sins by the blood of Christ Jesus, by the Messiah to come, who has indeed come, he says. He's right here, right now in front of you. Follow him. Don't follow me. And that's, of course, what pastors must do. Don't follow me. That dovetails very well into 1 Corinthians 1, right? We're going to have this afternoon about people following pastors, who baptized whom, who's the greater preacher, who's more clever and eloquent in the way he speaks. That's the guy I really like. No, a thousand times no, it is Christ and him crucified. And this is clearly what John is pointing to. It's why he says, I am not even worthy to be the lowliest servant who's supposed to come and take the shoes off and wash the feet after walking around in the dirt for hours on day, hour, throughout the day. I can't even be that kind of a servant, he says. He's so much greater than I. We must confess our sins. We must be baptized. But the remission of sins is not through those proper, but they are through Christ Jesus and him alone, what he's done on the cross for his people, by shedding his blood for them. The Old Testament saints were saved by grace, uh, through repentance, by faith alone, in Christ alone. They even had the Spirit, Psalm 51.11. Do not cast me away from your presence, David writes, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Again, the Old Testament saints had a richer theology than we realize sometimes from the Old Testament texts. Because it's so clear in the New Testament, obviously, right? you got the Holy Spirit. You have to have Him if you want to be born again. He's the one who gives you new life. He's the one who helps you persevere and fight the world, the flesh, and the devil. But he was also there in the Old Testament, brothers and sisters. And David acknowledged that and said, don't take him from me. He knew that he had the Spirit of God within him. And he needed God's Spirit to persevere in his life in the Old Testament. So that's the job of John the Baptizer. To baptize what? While preaching repentance for the remission of sins. The message of John the Baptizer in particular is Christ. Verses 6 through 8. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. Yeah, not for me. (laughs) My name, Sean, is Irish for John. I don't know, I mean, if God called me to be Sean the baptizer, I would do it. I would eat locusts because it would be an honor and a privilege to represent Jesus Christ as the herald. And he does this. The the picture here, and they describe him here in verse 6, he's painting a picture of a prophet. It uh, has some elements from the Old Testament, the way uh, they dress at times, you read in uh, Elijah and the like. And so it has a similar get-up and garment uh, layout as the Old Testament prophets. But also, I think, especially demonstrates the seriousness of the message. It is no light thing that the King of kings and Lord of lords comes down to the earth and becomes a man and walks among us. This is the time of mourning if you have not repented and to cry out for mercy, for remission of sins, that he not devour you in his holiness and a flaming sword from his mouth. And so he is showing the mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, of sins of the world, the sins in particular of Israel, the church. Because you did that when they had fasting in serious times. You'd put sackcloth upon you. You would would take the harder raiments. You would fast and eat less. And he didn't eat much. just honey and locusts is not really a king's meal. It's almost a form of fasting. So he's um, showing through this clothing and what he eats, the seriousness of the call of repentance and fighting the temptation of the world and submitting to Christ Jesus. He preaches Christ. Verse 7, he preached saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sand strap. I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. Who is the one? Jesus Christ. It is Christ Jesus who is the message. Preaching baptism, yes. Preaching repentance, yes. Preaching remission of sins, yes, but all that points to whom? Jesus Christ. He's echoing what Paul says explicitly in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. I did not come to baptize, but rather to preach the cross of Christ Jesus. And John would say amen. Because although they have changed in the outward forms between the Old Testament and New Testament, You don't have to be a Jew anymore. You don't have to dress like a Jew and eat like a Jew. And yet, it's the same message of salvation and repentance between the Testaments. And John the Baptizer preached Christ. Jesus, in fact, is greater in many ways. He preached, one who's after me is mightier, not just mightier in strength, but greater in glory. An authority as well, might of authority. Not just he's strong physically, but he means in terms of moral authority and above all, um, the authority of the Son of God, of a prophet, priest, and king. He's a greater prophet. Deuteronomy 18 prophesies of that. There come a greater prophet than Moses than John the Baptizer. He's the king and he's the great priest. As Hebrew unpacks and argues. It's another way of saying, John is saying to the Jews, you think I'm great? There's one greater than I am. And that's who you have to follow and submit to. Jesus, greater in his majesty and his power and his moral authority. And indeed, verse 8, I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In John 133 and 32 we read, And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained upon him. That is, the Messiah. I did not know him, but when he sent me to baptize with water, said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. John and even the apostles and myself this morning when I baptize, I can only baptize with water. That's all John is saying. John is not saying, there was no Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Oh, no. But rather, I can only sprinkle the child or the adult. But it's Christ Jesus who gives the sprinkling of the Holy Spirit, who baptizes, puts under the authority of and the strength of. I mean, it makes no sense if baptism always means immersion as a mode rather than the idea of under the power of, You're not baptized in the Holy Spirit. You're not dunked into him. What does that mean? You're dunked into the Holy Spirit. It's not the mode. It's the idea that you're under the authority of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Most High. It is only Christ, the Son of God, who gives us the Spirit. It's a gift of his ministry for us. One is visible. One is not. You can see me baptized, Marshall, you cannot see the Holy Spirit upon him. Of course, as I said before, the Old Testament saints had the Spirit of God. And even then, it only came through Jesus. Although he hadn't come to earth yet, they were given justification, sanctification, and ultimately glorification on the promise of what Christ would do. And that promise is more certain than you can ever imagine. And that's why they were given the Holy Spirit. And they were born again in the Old Testament, and given the gifts, before Christ had even physically lived on earth and died for his people. They were saved on the basis of that same blood, the same grounds. They are our fathers of the Old Testament, because it's the same salvation, it's the same Messiah, it's the same Holy Spirit. The point is, the baptism of New Testament power, that there's a great change, that's why I mentioned that before, there's a great pivot in history, redemptive history. And John the baptizer is a forerunner of that, the pivotal point, giving us a taste of the message and even of baptism to some extent. This is going to be involved, there's going to be a new rite of baptism now uh, for God's people, but in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So now the New Testament church has indeed changed. We were given more power. So when we have uh, baptized you with the Holy Spirit, and I think you said elsewhere the power of the Holy Spirit, it is the power of sanctification that we, brothers and sisters, have a boldness the Old Testament saints never had. They stayed in land. They never left the land. You saw some of the prophets fight against that. I don't want to go to Nineveh. I'm here. I'm, I'm, of, the, of, the, I'm of the promised land. This is what you've told me, and that's true. All, virtually all the prophets stayed in Israel. Now we're spread to the four corners of the earth, and we see that boldness. That power from on high, that's the difference between the Old Testament, not the power of being saved. They had the same power, but the power of sanctification and the boldness to go out and talk to people, especially the pastors. And that theme is there in Acts. As you recall, when I preached to that, they, they had this boldness. and mentions three or four times of the apostles not being ashamed of going outside the parameters of what they had comforting for 1,800 years. That's one of the big differences there. That's where the power of the Spirit of God is. John's message is our message today, brothers and sisters. And church and the pastor especially. were called to imitate John to the extent that he is speaking and doing what is still relevant in the New Testament era. And that's baptizing, although in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit now. It's preaching repentance. It's preaching remissions of sins through Christ Jesus our Lord. Who has come, not who is about to come or who's here now and hasn't quite died yet. As we see in John's case. What do you have when you talk about baptism for repentance, or repentance, baptism attached to repentance? You preach repentance, but you also preach remission of sins. Repentance is under the rubric of what? The law. You have sinned. You have violated God's commandments. Therefore, repent. And remission of sins is what? Under the rubric of the law. Therefore, obey enough, you get to heaven. That's the gospel. Law and gospel. The ordinance of baptism, the ordinance has changed. In the Old Testament, you just had the sacrificial system. That's an ordinance, a command of the church. had circumcision, right? Now we have baptism. But in both cases, you have law and gospel as the broader context of those ordinances. Because baptism is tied to both, as we know in the New Testament, of repentance, or future repentance in the case of Marshall, if he's not already born again. And acceptance, that is, submitting to Jesus and believing Him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. The gospel. Law and gospel is what I would contend John the baptizer was preaching to his audience. Repent. That's the law. And believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to come for remission of sins. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That you're not saved by works, by how obedient you are. And the churches must, must preach the law and the gospel, must preach repentance, must preach the law, for conviction to harden hearts, the gospel to bring the remission of sins, of salvation, full and free in Christ Jesus our Lord. John the baptizer did not bring a different message than the apostles, than Christ Jesus, brothers and sisters. but Rather, he preached the same law, and he preached the same gospel, although it wasn't very clear to him in the revelation that we have in the New Testament, yet it's the same thing in substance. Many May churches, we pray, and may you pray to that end. And pastors, in particular, continue in the steps of this great man to preach both repentance and remission of sins. Amen. Let us pray. Indeed, God Almighty, we're thankful for the work and ministry of John the Baptizer, especially in that day and age, God, and yet we can still be encouraged, especially I pray for the pastors, to follow his bold example, where he called even Herod, Herod. Uh, to repentance, God, for his gross violation of your law. He lost his head over it. May we have, Lord, men like John the Baptizer, but with clarity of the revelation and the boldness of the apostles, God, that we have in the entirety of the New Testament era, that many would be brought into your kingdom. Amen. Let us stand and sing Hymn 406, 406. grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen.